tuned into How to OT, making research more accessible and more consumable for the occupational therapy practitioner. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Okay, on today's episode of How to OT, I am joined by Leanna Namovic, um, another one of my classmates here at WashU in St. Louis, class of 2020. Leanna, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. This is wonderful. Of course. Leanna is, I would say, the miscongeniality type of our cohort. Um, you truly are the friendliest and most welcoming. And everyone in our cohort loves Leanna. She gets along with everyone, no matter what setting. And you were actually voted to give the speech um, for our cohort at graduation. But you had to end up recording that, right? Because we're doing it virtually now. I sure did. Yeah. You were too kind, Matt. All of your kind words. Hey, just just being honest over here. But yeah, so our virtual commencement is going to be this Friday and we'll all get to hear Leanna's speech. Um, and I'm sure it's going to be great. Were you going to open up with a joke for your speech? Oh, I sure wish that I did come up with a joke. Um, yeah, you'll hear this when we do fake graduation, but it's more like thinking about how we've all been looking out for each other over the past three years and like thinking about how we can carry that into our professional lives. So I wish I had a joke though. Hey, that's okay. I was going to give you the <laughs> opportunity to tell your joke here, but uh, yeah, no, no worries. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to hear your speech and can't wait. And I think you're a great representative for our class and our profession to say that as well. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners to further introduce yourself? Maybe what area of OT you want to work in? Yeah, I still don't know what area I'd like to work in, which like three years in, I should know. Um, but I did my level two at this really cool nonprofit here in St. Louis that does Alzheimer's and dementia home health care. Um, I really love that population and like getting to know caregivers so maybe I'll wind up working with older adults, maybe kids, maybe an unconventional OT setting. Truly only time will tell. Um, but finding an area of practice that fits my skill set was actually kind of a big part of what sparked this model. Is that a memory care home solutions? Oh, it sure was. Yeah. So in season one of How to OT, I spoke with um, Dr. Gitlin and Dr. Pearsall, who were the founders of that program. Yeah, I listened to those episodes and was like, wow, this is so cool to hear the like people who came up with everything um, after working with what they created for three months. Uh, that's yeah, I guess we're a memory care home solutions podcast now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on, Leanna. Well, today um, we're going to talk about the model that you developed as part of one of our courses here in our third uh year or our doctoral year some people call it and your model was titled a model to support occupational therapists and healthcare workers with disabilities and this is a unique conversation we're going to have i've spoken with some of our classmates on the show about their practice models but this is the first interview where we're focusing exclusively on that model um, and so to start off could you kind of tell us about the model's course uh, so we all have a, an idea of what all goes into the development of a model. So the class takes place over two semesters um, and it's based in the PEOP model. So person, environment, occupation, participation. First semester, you pick a population and research their typical occupations. 
their person factors, so motor, physiological, psychological, cognitive, sensory, and spirituality factors. And then the second semester, you research environmental factors, so policy, culture, physical environment, social support, and technology. And then throughout all of this, you're mapping out how these factors interact, trying to analyze if any of the factors have a bigger influence on the population than others. And then at the end of it, you come up with a visual depiction of these interactions and kind of where do you go from here? So what's OT's role? How do we use what we've learned here to better serve the population um, that you researched? It's a really awesome class, and I feel like it's a great way for all of us to practice and exercise using our OT lens in developing ways to uh, work with people to enable their performance and engagement in occupation. Certainly. I also feel like I learned a lot about researching, like deep, deep dive researching um, throughout this, which I think will definitely help me a lot in the OT world. Absolutely. Was there something or someone that inspired you to develop your practice model on this topic in particular? So I kind of hinted at this earlier, but I was inspired by my own experience at OT school, as well as the experiences of some of my peers and some like practicing real practitioners that I've come to know. I have a disability and when an individual with a disability gets to OT school, the onus is put on the student to determine what accommodations they might need, um, both in the didactic setting and then again in the fieldwork and real world setting, um, and then secure like a doctor's note saying the accommodations are necessary. Basically, there's a lot of hoops that you have to go through that aren't really laid out. Um, I'd never gone through any kind of accommodations process because I have a physical disability. Um, and when I asked peers with learning disabilities who I knew had accommodations, they told me that they had gotten letters from high school or college and the process was very different back then. So it was extremely murky. And over my three years in school, I kept hearing the same story from peers trying to figure out what would be in quotes, reasonable accommodations for themselves. Um, when you may not even know what you're being asked to do in the OT role. So it's hard to use your OT lens to think about accommodations if you know, you're not even sure what you're being asked to do. There's also a lot of stigma around being disabled in the healthcare field. And so I feel like professors didn't really want to acknowledge that um, I or others were seeking help. And therefore you don't really get any guidance getting that help. So I joined a Facebook group for OTs with disabilities, which was super helpful. But even there, I kept seeing posts from established practitioners who would acquire disabilities or move to a new practice setting that were still swimming through Merck um, to try and figure out how best to support themselves in their new settings or with their new disabilities. Um, it's really disheartening to see that there is virtually no guidance, even at the professional level, when determining accommodations is in our job description. Yeah, that is, that's shocking for me to hear that it is so murky and there really is this huge lack or, or gap of guidance um, that students and professionals are, are faced with. And so would you say that the point of your model is to kind of help fill that gap and provide more guidance to students or practitioners who have disabilities? Certainly, yes. Um, it was both, it's kind of designed to be used by several different populations. So by, um, you know, ed healthcare administrators uh, at the highest level, um, people who are doing the hiring, people who are managing their team, 
people on the team who are both you know with disabilities and without disabilities and then on the education front um, faculty staff and students themselves awesome well i am so excited to hear the details of this model and it seems so important to me um, because hearing you share your personal experience i can only imagine when you start OT school, it's already so difficult learning a new profession and focusing on gaining all the career skills that you're going to need um, to, to become a practitioner. Um, and then you add on, you have to navigate on your own what type of accommodations you may need from your school and request those on your own and get all the documentation and recommendations that you need on your own. That sounds like it just is pretty burdensome and, and, and could be very difficult. So I'm excited to hear about your model. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Matt, when I was looking at the, uh, the excuse me, occupations that healthcare professionals um, perform for my very first essay for this models class. My first couple paragraphs were, you know, what makes up an occupational therapist job, but then I had a whole other half of the essay that was what are all the added occupations that um, occupational therapy students and practitioners have to undergo. Um, and it was just mind boggling to see how much extra work had to go into it. It, it, it sounds like it would be mind boggling. And I want to now maybe dive more deeply into that research and literature um, that you discovered and, and looked at quite extensively while developing this model. Could you share with us maybe some of the main takeaways from your background research and literature review? Sure. Um, I was pretty surprised to find that environmental factors were the main determinants of occupational performance. I feel like I have been placing pretty big emphasis on accommodations in what we've been discussing so far, which people usually think of as technology, but the other aspects of environment like culture, social support, and policy were all huge factors in determining adequate occupational functioning for healthcare professionals with disabilities. Um, those, again, culture, uh, it's looking more at like the culture of medicine and um, kind of that invincibility culture that uh, I'm sure we're going to touch on in a little later in our conversation. Um, looking at, you know, the physical environment of various settings and how adaptable those environments are. What are the ergonomics? Um, what impacts do natural environment play in the physical environment? Looking at social support and social capital. Um, how do the different relationships that you might have within school setting or within um, the work setting play into how you're able to do your job? So support networks, decreasing or increasing imposter syndrome, um, increasing feelings of competency and self-advocacy, the ability to disclose, um, whether you feel safe disclosing to get those accommodations. Um, and then finally, looking at that technology, uh, what are adaptive technologies or even universal design um, practices that can be implemented on a population level um, that can impact the functioning of healthcare professionals with and without disabilities. Those were the big things that really stuck out to me and were kind of surprising how impactful they were. And that's extremely interesting to me as, as well, hearing you explain that environmental factors had even a greater impact than the person factors. Um, a lot of people might refer to these as intrinsic or extrinsic factors, um, but especially looking at it again from your perspective as a student in a, in a program, uh, 
and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like it's much easier to, to kind of change and acknowledge um, intrinsic or person factors uh, on your own than it is to kind of like change those environmental factors, which are also dependent on other people um, and your outside environment. Uh, so that's really interesting. Uh, and to me kind of presents an even greater problem because it might take more time and more effort to change those environmental factor as opposed to the person factors. Yeah, exactly. And of course, like the person factors are important. Um, like those factors can determine the individual modifications that a person may need to make their job their job. Uh, but overall, the environmental factors tend to be much more impactful. Um, I kept coming up with the fact that uh, people with disabilities are incredibly resilient um, throughout various things that I was reading. Um, and if you've made it to the level of becoming a healthcare professional, you probably have become a pretty darn good self-advocate. And it becomes those external factors that make things really difficult. That's really interesting. I, I love your, your final paper. Um, when I reviewed it, the, the very first line just jumped off the page at me. And I was like, yeah, this, like, this makes sense. This is really cool. It, it says, healthcare practitioners work with a diverse array of clients of all races, genders, and ability levels. The healthcare profession should also reflect this diversity. Can you tell us what some of the benefits are of healthcare reflecting this diversity? I think at the root of it, it's that cultural humility can only get you so far. So thinking from my own personal experience, there's this extreme euphoria of being seen in a healthcare setting by someone who gets it. Um, women get this when you get a female doctor and you know that they won't brush off your pain as, you know, quote, female problems. Um, I know friends of color have uh, mentioned that they feel just a lot safer when they get a fellow person of color um, doctor who has experienced medical racism themselves, uh, but you very rarely see healthcare workers with disabilities. Um, and then you think about what's the population that most OTs work with, it's people who have a newfound chronic condition or disability. So who better be to be teaching um, these clients how to adapt than those who have adapted themselves. I love that. Kind of would you say that facilitating the path for people with disabilities to enter the OT profession could be a way to not only increase this diversity, but also to address some of those environmental factors that we touched on earlier? Certainly. I definitely agree with that. Definitely increasing the prevalence of diverse members of the healthcare field will increase that path and decrease the environmental factors um, that are kind of being barriers. But I think it's also kind of what I was saying earlier with the mentality that, you know, practitioners who are not the majority um, bring to the field would change that culture. So I guess, yes, what you're saying is changing, bringing in more people um, who are not part of the majority mindset will change those environmental factors. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I know that was kind of like a double-barreled, confusing question. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> All right. I, I also found in reviewing your paper um, the statistic that 2.7% of medical students disclose having a disability, which is far less than the general population, um, which percent is 19. That really stuck out to me as well. Why do you think this disparity exists between medical students when compared with the general population? Um, I feel like we kind of touched on this with the 
double barrel question that uh, you kind of asked earlier, but the root of it, I think, is kind of ableism. I saw this time and time again in literature. The culture is changing, but not really fast enough. There's still this culture of invincibility in healthcare where, you know, I am the healthcare professional and you are the patient and someone who looks like a patient cannot be a healthcare professional. And that's opposed both by the decision makers in healthcare and by people self-selecting that they cannot be healthcare workers because they don't look like healthcare workers. There's this quote that I heard um, recently in a COTAD seminar. COTAD stands for Coalition of OT Advocates for Diversity. Um, and the quote was, you can't be what you can't see. And I think that really applies here. Um, there are only still so many modifications that you can make to a healthcare job, like accommodations wise, you know, changing technology, changing um, the way that a job is done. But I think many of the accommodations that I've heard administrators push back against like using Hoyer lifts or standardized electronic medical records, giving a 24-hour grace period for documentation, um, just to name a few, they benefit not only practitioners with disabilities, but also practitioners without. So these things kind of benefit everyone and I think would really increase um, that statistic. Awesome. Yeah, I love that. I was, I was going to ask, I was going to say, how do we combat this disparity? Um, but you already gave some answers. Would are, are there other ways? In looking at specific things to change, a lot of uh, the things that I was looking at more were found within the intrinsic factors. Um, so specifically for um, motor disabilities or preventing uh, motor impairments, it was the use of technology like Hoyer lifts, um, using uh, clothing that potentially gives you better grips when you're transferring people, um, uh, clothing for patients um, that gives you better grips. Um, on a more higher up population level, conducting in-services on proper lifting techniques, reiterating the things that you may have learned you know, 15, 20 years ago in OT school. Some other ones that come to mind, uh, within uh, cognitive factors and within emotional factors, it was giving a bit more time for documentation. So a couple of places have um, pretty strict, you know, you can't leave till you finish your documentation for the day, but increasing that to a 24-hour grace period or, you know, allowing HIPAA-compliant time for documentation maybe outside of your traditional work hours um, made things a little bit easier and a little less stressful. And again, like I was saying before, a lot of these factors or a lot of these uh, accommodations benefited not only practitioners with disabilities, but also those without. Yeah, those are awesome examples of some of these uh, factors that we've, we've touched on and how they really influence an individual when seen using your model. Um, how would you say that these factors, both person and environmental, combine to help someone avoid occupational dysfunction? So the ways that these factors combine to help someone avoid occupational dysfunction, I think it's all about finding occupational balance. So throughout, uh, I kept running into the importance of maintaining time for leisure activities, um, maintaining time for performing important ADLs and IADLs outside of your work time. In the realm of embodied healthcare practitioners, um, that can look like 
you know, setting boundaries within your workplace, um, setting boundaries within your home life, leaving work at work, leaving home at home, um, which can be really difficult, but can be really important. Um, and then within the realm of healthcare practitioners with disabilities, um, as we touched on earlier, you know, you're taking on extra occupations with respect to determining accommodations and making your job fit your P factors. Um, if your job doesn't necessarily fit all of your intrinsic factors um, from the get go. So again, making time, splitting up um, your leisure, your home, your work, et cetera. Um, those are some of the ways that you really have to think about those P factors um, influencing occupational performance. What about OT, Leanna? Where does OT come into play in this model? What would you say is kind of the role of OT in your model? Um, I thought of OT's involvement in kind of a two-tier capacity. So on the individual level and the population level. Within the individual level, um, kind of touched on some of these, but we can help with maybe employee health screenings um, or with determining accommodations, setting up assistive technology, or determining ergonomics when new hires join the team or when someone acquires a disability. Um, on the more population level, we can provide in-services targeting specific P factors that benefit both um, disabled and able-bodied healthcare professionals. So specifically, I was kind of thinking mental wellness in services or ones that reiterate good body mechanics and using technology to help in transfers. Um, and then even higher up on the population level, OTs can advocate for system-wide changes like implementing ergonomic technology across the board instead of on an individual basis or increasing flexibility in standard operations um, to implement some of those uh, accommodations that we kind of touched on earlier. What would you say, Leanna, to educational programs or employers who think that it's a risk to take on a student or a worker who has a disability? I'd say that it's your loss. Um, healthcare workers with disabilities, they bring their personal lived experience of having a disability to the table which multiple studies that I read showed increased client satisfaction with the client practitioner experience. So sure, it may take a little extra conversation, a little extra you know, using that OT lens to determine what works best for the student or worker, but in the end, I think that effort will pay off. Uh, like I said, the evidence continued to point to healthcare workers with disabilities being excellent self-advocates. So listening and having, having open and honest conversations about what the worker or student needs to be successful will benefit pretty much everyone on the team. How could a school address these factors and encourage the best outcomes for a student who has a disability? A school would really benefit from having open and honest conversations with students. I felt like something, and of course I can only speak to the school experience because I've only lived through the school experience so far, but not really obfuscating that accommodations process and having, having open conversations like, yes, I see or hear, or you've told me that you need a little extra time or you, you know, aren't able to do this task that we are being asked or we are asking students to do. Um, let's discuss, like break down task analysis what you have to do um, and let's figure out how to make it work instead of 
I hear you have a problem. Let me know what you need, um, which if you don't know what you need, how can you let the other person know? Yeah. And, and that sounds like the biggest disconnect as, as we touched on earlier, what, what could educators or administrators uh, kind of do to, to help them be more informed or, or to react better when they do have a student with a disability? Another trend that I saw a lot in the literature was um, just how much attitudes changed through going through, um, I think they called it like a disability awareness training, but something akin to that um, where, you know, you're getting used to saying that a disability is okay kind of deal. Um, I feel like so often um, people shy away from um, having those conversations because they're scared and don't know how to have those conversations, but going through trainings specifically targeted towards having those conversations um, was shown repeatedly to make educators feel more comfortable um, in having accommodation conversations. Awesome. Yeah, that, that sounds like a, like a great thing um, educators could be a part of, those yeah. types of trainings. And I feel like it's one of those things like, oh, just go to another training. But um, the fact that the literature is behind it as, you know, something that helps, I think really, it debunked my own bias against trainings. Yeah. And, and we hate to add another thing on the list for educators or practitioners or administrators to do. Oh, certainly. This is something that's truly important and it can add a lot of value, not just to the education, but to our whole field as a, as a profession. Mm-hmm, exactly. This is a, this is a good time to transition anyways, because I was going to ask you some more personal or opinion based questions about what you've accomplished. Cool. Um, starting with a great question, Leanna, what have you enjoyed most about your project? I really thought that I would hate spending a year on a topic and doing such a deep dive, but I have loved it. Like if you ever get the opportunity to spend a year doing a deep dive on something, like take it and run with it because this has been a phenomenal experience in both like developing skills as, you know, a researcher, um, but also just in getting to know a population really well. So it was really cool. How will this deep dive influence your future practice and career decisions? So I think it'll definitely influence, you know, my own, you know, career progression because now I have so many more tools in my toolbox. Um, I'm working on disseminating this information. This is kind of my first step of disseminating. Um, So if you listen to this and you want to talk more about it, I'm sure I can get Matt to put my email in the uh, description of the podcast as well. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. If you want to share your email or a way people could contact you, um, you can just even say it right now and I'll also oh, cool. put it in the description. Uh, yeah, my email is Leanna, L-E-A-N-N-A dot Namovic, and is in Nancy, A-M-O-V as in Victor, I-C at gmail.com. Um, let me know if you want to chat more about this model. I'm kind of in the phase of um, trying to see feasibility, if there's any uh, other perspectives, ideas, 
ways to make it more intuitive, um, easier to be consumed in a really short um, time frame. Because um, I mean, I've obviously spent a lot of time on this, but I don't want other people to spend a lot of time trying to understand the model. And so, you know, phase one, figure out if it is feasible and has legs and, you know, makes sense. Phase two, disseminate. You know, phase three, hopefully make some change. Um, so that's kind of the goal here. Yeah, awesome. I love that. And what, what's been difficult about this whole process? Spending an entire year on one topic uh, has also been very difficult because <laughs> you definitely get a little bored at times. Well, there you go. Um, I, I also would agree. It's, it's like you, you said that's like one of the things you enjoyed the most, but it's also difficult. It's like a, a double-edged sword because it's so great learning so much about one population, but you can also run into just a lot of kind of dead ends when you're trying to find research. So I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, dead ends is a good way to classify it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, Lana, just a couple more questions now. What do you hope that OT practitioners take away from your model and what you've shared with us today? Uh, I hope that OT practitioners take away that hiring people with disabilities doesn't have to be a liability and doesn't have to be a scary thing. It's just like hiring any other new hire. Is there anyone you would like to acknowledge or thank in the completion of your practice model? I'd really like to thank Monica Perlmutter for being just a shining star and such a guiding force throughout all of this. There were, I guess, the first month of models class, I was flip-flopping on, you know, is this a population I can research? There's not a lot of research. It also just feels too personal, but like, also, I just kept hearing from peers that it was something that, you know, they had no guidance over. Um, so I just kept flip-flopping with Monica, who was our, you know, professor overseeing this class. Um, and she finally was just like, Leanna, I think that this is the population you need to research and do a deep dive over. Um, and she was the one also who was kind of pushing me to disseminate and get the word out about this. So thanks to Monica. Awesome. Thank you. And all right, Leanna, last question. This is our golden nugget segment. Are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> I really just like to build suspense towards this question. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What is one thing that you've learned from this process that you wish everyone knew? See, I knew this question was coming because I've listened to like quite a few episodes of How to OT. I was like, Leanna, just come up with it in the moment. It'll be so much more genuine that way. My golden nugget takeaway is just be nice to like people when they're struggling in your workplace or struggling in your school environment. Because you don't necessarily know how many other things they're having to take on to be where you're at. That is my golden nugget takeaway. That's a great golden nugget. And I honestly feel that sometimes the most seemingly simple um, but genuine golden nuggets are the ones that can be most impactful um, to people's lives. So thank you very much, Leanna. Thank you, Matt.
Thanks for listening to How to OT. Tune in next time for another episode where we bring accessible and consumable research straight to you. Hey, hey, hey I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Hey, 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 I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. Hey, hey, hey I'm on vacation every single day. I think that's it. Good luck editing this because it feels like it was kind of all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> It would stink to record all of this and then not have it actually record. Mm. I am going to have to re-say that sentence, I'm so sorry. Oh, I forgot to mention this earlier. I'm breaking the fourth wall right now, Leanna. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry if I threw off your groove. (laughs) No, you're so fine. (laughs) All right. That was not a great answer to your question. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, no, I liked it. One second, I've lost where I am. Um, okay. Gotta speak from the heart. I will. Okay, we kind of got went down a rabbit hole. Sorry about yeah, that. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good rabbit hole. You should go and change it. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. Or sorry. Yeah.